0: Well, good morning. My name is Nate Arnold. Good morning. Hi, Nate. <laughs> good to see y'all this morning. Uh, as John says, we are starting, uh, starting back, continuing through teaching the book of First Corinthians. And uh, we've had a little time off for the holidays, so we're jumping back into a new mini-series. And the mini-series is titled, Check Your Status. And John has already told you that we'll be going through various statuses of people. And uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to be preaching the title of the sermon is, Sex in Marriage, a Logical Conundrum. A Logical Conundrum. That's an old word. But uh, we'll, we'll break that out a little bit, hopefully, for you in a few minutes. But before we begin our message, a little cultural background to reconnect where we were in 1 Corinthians to uh, the message today. We're, we're going to need to do that. So it's, it's, it's a little necessary. So I think it's kind of fun that the first topic back into Corinthians is about sex. It's going to be G-rated today. Don't worry. But it's about sex, and in particularly, uh, sexual immorality and how to protect from that. I've taught you before that Corinth was a sailor town. For those of you who are not sailors, you really don't have an idea what that means. But it was with rough men who sailed ships. And Corinth had two ports. And these men were always passing in and out, so there was all kinds of prostitution, sex trafficking, all the things that you would see that revolve around a port today. Corinth was full of those kinds of things. Also, Corinth was a town full of new money. It had two ports. People were made millionaires every day. There was the upper middle class they were making money left and right. There was the wealthy class. I mean, these, these people just, they were much opulence. And all the things that go on in that strata of society, uh, society, the adultery, the premarital sex, all the partying, everything that said, look at me, I've arrived, was going on in Corinth. Corinth also had the overlay of Greek culture. Now, to us, that's kind of distant. But for the Greeks, the idea was that there was a whole pantheon of gods, and if you could figure out which god could serve your needs, you could appease that particular god and get what you wanted. So it was the original me generation of the the time. One could get what they want, they could do what they wanted, as long as they could appease these gods. And then on top of that, at Corinth, was also the very Greek idea that spiritual things were good. If I could be in the spirit and and, and think about spiritual things, they're good. But material things were bad. That's the way the Greek world thought. So material things, which included emotions, because they were connected to your body, the Greeks would say, you could do whatever you want to with your body as long as your spiritual mind was right. And I know you've all heard the phrase mind over matter, it's my mind and it don't matter. But, but that's, 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 that was their society of the day. So when you combine these two attitudes, I do what I want, and it doesn't matter what I do with physical things, these ideas often manifested themselves as various types of sexual promiscuity. As a matter of fact, the Greek word that we find in the Bible is the word porneia, which is an umbrella term for all types, I mean, all types of sexual immorality and promiscuity. And God, through the power of His Holy Spirit and the person of Paul, chooses to plant a church right smack in the middle of all this. Isn't God amazing? Amen. Isn't God amazing? Now, I find that the world I live in, Goose Creek, South Carolina today, is, is very similar to Corinth in reality. Sexual immorality is a problem today, is it not? Just as it was then. It destroys people today just as it did back then. I find, just as the Corinthians did, that the cultural influence regarding sexual immorality is very strong around me all the time. It's always there. And the culture is always seeking to push its ideas into me and and change the way I think. It's it's moving me in a direction like a a giant current. And this happens in very subtle ways, and it happens in some not-so-subtle ways. I'll give you three quick examples. Television. It is very hard today, very hard, to find movies that do not present some form of sexual immorality. It is extremely difficult. Either overtly or by innuendo, especially with regard to premarital sex, sleeping around, living together, or homosexuality. Media has mainstreamed or pushed all that stuff to mainstream society, and that's the way our culture thinks today. Internet. Internet's a lot of fun. I happen to, I didn't design the internet, develop the internet. I'm not Al Gore. But, the, but really, I work on multiple computers throughout the day, and, and I touch multiple websites. And it's always fun to me to play with the computer, because when you first get on the website, it's trying to figure out who you are. There's a set of heuristics or an algorithm behind it trying to figure out whether you're male, female, white, black, age, whatever, so they can target marketing to you. It's a lot of fun. So they'll throw up scattered ads, and you just pick one, and that starts a string of things happening. So sometimes I'll pick a lady's purse. <laughs> and it's kind of fun, you know. Then the next thing, it'll show me is some high heel shoes. And but the ads, as they go, as it starts necking down who it thinks I am, get more and more sensual, don't they? If it thinks I'm a young lady, the last thing it kind of shows me is a guy without a shirt on, he's buff, he's shaved, and his jeans are cut all the way down to here. It gets very sexual very quick. If it thinks I'm a young man, it starts showing me young ladies, doesn't it? The one I get the biggest kick out of is when I'm searching, uh, researching construction equipment or things like that. The next thing I know, I'm looking at a generator, to go on a, a job site, and there's this scantily clad, beautiful lady in Daisy Duke shorts, tube top, white hard hat, and red high heel shoes. Now, on what OSHA approved construction site <laughs> will that, that ever, ever happen? Okay? So, but they target pleasurable lusts. They associate the pleasurable things of the eye with the, the product they're selling, and they seek to use that for us. There's also the legitimization of sexual things that creep into our language and we don't even really think about this, we kind of accept it. But you see the movement when I was young, things are called strip clubs. Now they're called gentlemen's clubs. You see how that moves into mainstream society. We use double entendres in our marketing and that's okay. You'll see businesses called Hooters, you all know what I'm talking about. Some people are trying not to laugh real hard. But you also see things like prostitution and other items like that that are now more legitimized in our society, and they're called the sex trades, aren't they? You see the movement of culture, you see the movement of language, you see all the swirl that's around us pushing us in that direction. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should mistreat or look down with disdain upon anybody that works at Hooters, TV actors, or even the people that work in the sex trades. It's not what Christ calls us to do. Christ calls us to extend his love to those people and hopefully wind up telling them about the gospel. That's not the intent of me discussing this point. What I am saying is that the culture around me is always, always seeking to mold the way I think, to make me conform, to heighten and exploit the sinful desires that already reside in me, and thereby pull me away from following Christ. And these are the devices that Satan uses against me, against you, The culture becomes nothing more than an amplifier that magnifies or strengthens the pull of my own sinfulness. It's like, I know all of you in the room have played with magnets. Raise your hand if you have never played with a magnet. Good. You'll find one on your refrigerator probably at home. But you know if you link two magnets together, the force field gets stronger. So that's what happens to me when culture is all around me. That's one magnet. And my sinful desires get plugged together. I can sin. I can wind up running off the rails and going into sin. And many people do. Many people roll into sexual sin at that point. Now, let's just be candid and be real about sin for a moment. Everybody in the room's a sinner. Get over it. Okay, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But here's what I want you to see. When we sin, we often want to blame other people, don't we? Just what Adam and Eve did. (laughs) You know, Adam said, hey, the woman you gave me. The woman said, hey, the snake. (laughs) And that's what we want to do. It's somebody else's fault when we sin. But I want to show you what the scripture says about sin and, and go through this. Let's look at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. James chapter 1, thir- 13 through 15. It says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God's not doing this. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But what does it say here? It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own lust. It's the thing in me that causes me to sin. The desire, when it, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. That's where sin comes from. It comes from inside of me, not those outside forces that try to push it on me. But the Bible is very clear also that if you're a follower of Christ, you have the spirit of the living God in you, and me, and we do not have to sin. Even though all his forces are around me, I don't have to sin. And the Bible is very, very clear here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you. It is not common to man. Everybody has this problem. No temptation has overtaken you. It's not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with also with the temptation, he will, But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You don't have to sin. We don't, we don't have to. Okay. not saying we'll be perfect or anything like that. Okay? So you say, well, Nate, if I, if I sin because of what's in me and, and I don't have to sin, then how do I work out this life and keep from sinning, especially with regard to this sexual immorality stuff? Well, the Bible is, again, clear, and I, I would like you to take this as homework, if you will. Romans chapter seven and eight. I'm not gonna cover the whole chapter, I'm just gonna cover a few verses, but take this as homework, go home and, and study this. Look at what the scripture says. In Romans chapter seven, verses 21 through 25, Paul says, so I find it to be a law that when I wanna do right, evil lies close at hand, duh. Okay, it's all around me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in my spirit. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What Paul's saying is if you follow the Spirit, you can stay away from sin. If you follow the flesh, you'll fall flat on your face every time. That's everyone in this room, everyone. And you you say, Nate, okay, great, but I still sin, right? This way for yes. okay. Yeah, we do. We still still sin. Let's just be real about sin. Well, now you understand. This is why we can't look down on anyone else. This is why we can't look down on those people in the sex trades or or anyone else that we think is abhorrent to us. We can't look down on them because there's no way that anybody in this room is ever going to get to heaven by our own sinlessness. Never going to happen. We don't possess that. Ever. But it's only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we get to heaven. You see, God takes the righteousness of Christ, and he accepts that in place of our sinful being. And that's how we get to stand perfect and holy before a living and powerful and just God. And you see, it's precisely because my sins have been forgiven, my sins have been forgiven, that I now struggle against sin. I, I want to fight against this thing that's killing me. And I do it so that Christ, who paid the price for me, gets all the glory. That's the reason I do it. That's the sole reason I do it. Not, I'm not trying to pay it back. This is not some spiritual mortgage that I eventually pay off in heaven and woohoo, now God, I'm in, I'm good. That's, that's not what the scripture teaches us. But I can showcase everything that Christ has done in my life. And to do this, my affections have to become focused on Christ instead of my own desires. This is why we seek to use every tool to struggle against sin, especially sexual immorality because sexual immorality destroys us. So you say, Nate, great. What tools are available? What practical remedies? What wisdom is is available to help me here because you just said it's all around me. It's like a giant magnetic force always pulling on me. Well, I'm glad you asked. I, I, I really am. So we look to the Bible. And the Bible helps us find wisdom. Now, I've taught you before, what's the definition of wisdom? Biblical wisdom is the application of God's word and commands to the struggles of everyday life. That's all it is. We're required to get in the book, learn the book, hear the book, practice the book, listen to the Spirit, and apply the commandments of God to the struggles of everyday life. So now we've looked at the cultural background. We've discussed why we sin. And a little bit about how to resist it. So now, let's look at the scriptural background for what we're going to preach on today. I'm still laying track here. <laughs> I'm still giving you the background of, before we get to our text. And the scriptural background for our text today is found in the preceding chapter, in chapter 6. And I'm not going to go through all the chapter here. I'm just going to hit some highlights for you. But that's another great place to look. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12-20. through 20. And Paul begins dealing with these cultural attitudes that, are, that surround us, that try to put themselves in our minds and in our hearts. And Paul is trying to explain to the Corinthians, he said, culture and Bible go in two different directions very often. The way the culture wants to take you goes this way, and the way the Bible wants to take you goes this way. And Paul applies this teaching in chapter 6 to both married and unmarried. So the two basic categories or statuses that we're talking about today. And in verse 12, the the Corinthians are saying, Well, look, Paul, all things are legal for me. Jesus has paid off everything. I'm good to go. I can do what I want. That's kind of a playoff of material things. or doesn't matter what you do with them. And Paul says, Look, you might do what you want, but it's not beneficial. You might do what you want but don't wind up being mastered by anything. All things are legal, but I'll not be mastered. I like to think of cherry cordials. Everybody know what cherry cordials are? Okay, all the ladies are going, yeah. Okay, Cherry cordials are these yummy little maraschino cool cherries with all their sweet juice and it's wrapped inside a chocolate. It's totally legal for me to have cherry cordials. But as soon as the wrapper comes off that double-decker layer box of, it's gone. I got chocolate smeared all over my face. You know, my uh, my pupils are dilated. My heart's racing. Yeah, that's what happens to me. Even though it's legal for me, it's not beneficial, is it? And by the way, diabetes runs all through both sides of my family. So, yeah, that's a terminal course if you want to take it. That's what Paul's saying. In verse 13 of chapter 6, the, the Corinthians are saying, look, and you hear this today, sex is an appetite like anything else. You know, food for the stomach, stomach for the food. I eat whatever, I eat when I'm hungry. And by extension, I commit sexual immorality whenever I feel like it. Paul says, no, he says the purpose of our bodies, the reason they exist is to glorify the Lord. And Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. That's the reason the body exists. And then in verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. It's a sin against your own body. Flee sexual immorality. It's like taking your laptop and using it as a hammer. It really is. It's like taking your laptop and using it as a hammer. Your laptop gets destroyed. When we commit sexual immorality, we are destroying ourselves, is what Paul is saying. You eventually do destroy yourselves. And in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6, Paul says, Your body is what carries around the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives here. And you no longer belong to yourself. You're bought with a price, a very precious price, which was the lifeblood of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. the living God. So Paul says there, he says, glorify God in your body. Use your body the way it was intended. That's for married and unmarried people. And that's the background for our text today. That's the background. So it's our habit to stand for the reading of the Lord's word. So I will ask you, I'm fixing to start preaching now. (laughs) I'm gonna. God's going great. We'll get out of here at three. Okay. But this comes from First Corinthians chapter seven, verses one through five. This is the word of the Lord. It says now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add a blessing to it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us today, even now, to delight in Christ, to hold him as much more beautiful than everything else. Open our minds, open our hearts, give us understanding, give us the power of your spirit And, Lord, encourage us in all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are a well-trained audience. (laughs) Now, I need to warn you here, just before I start preaching that, before we unpack this passage, this particular passage, which is why I know my brothers love me because they assigned me this particular passage to preach on But this particular passage has been misinterpreted, it's been taken out of context, even twisted for personal gain and it's been used as levers over husbands and wives and other people wrongly. And Paul here often gets mischaracterized as teaching that celibacy is better than marriage. He gets accused of being a male chauvinist. A chauvinist is a person that believes one group is better than another, so a male chauvinist would believe that males are better than females, and he also gets accused of being a misogynist, which is a woman hater, all because of this passage, so we're going to have fun, right? Okay. But this passage is like a merry-go-round, really. Everyone in the room has probably had a little experience with a merry-go-round. You know that when you're riding the merry-go-round, the faster it goes, the closer to the middle you want to be. It makes it easy to, to hang on. So the closer we stay to the center of the text, which is why I laid the foundation for us today, the easier it is to hang on, the easier it is to understand, the closer we stay to the central message the easier it is to grasp what Paul is saying. If you miss the central idea here, it's like being at the edge of the roller coaster. You're struggling to hang on, and eventually you're going to get flung off in some willy-nilly direction, and, and you're going to lose what Paul is trying to say. Paul is not intending to teach everything about marriage in this passage. Tons of other passages in the Bible that teach about Marriage, okay. Ephesians 5 is a great place to start, but there's tons of other passages that teach all about marriage and husband and wife. Paul is not seeking to teach everything about marriage in five verses, not trying to. He's intending to teach that marriage is one tool given by God that helps prevent sexual immorality. That's the central, that's the center of the merry-go-round. Paul is intending to teach how we treat one another within the context of marriage to prevent sexual immorality. So how does this passage help us in our fight against sexual immorality? Well, there's several things I want you to notice in the passage, and the the verses will be appearing over my head here, but I've intentionally left your notes blank. Somebody asked me before service today, Nate, why didn't you give me any points? And I, I said, you'll hear why in a minute. But I intentionally left that big open space so that you can copy down what's good for you, so you can find what's useful for you and, and take notes there, put down what's helpful. But in verse 1, I want you to note, verse 1, Paul is answering a question from the Corinthians. Paul established the Corinthian church. He spent 18 months there. He sent letters back and forth. He's had at least two delegations come to him to bring questions and things like that. Paul also sent Timothy back to uh, Corinth, and he tried to get, um, uh, who was it? I just lost my mind. Ap- yeah, Apollos. Tried to get Apollos to go to Corinth. He encouraged him to go, to go see uh, the Corinthians and, and, and strengthen them spiritually. So Paul has an ongoing relationship with Corinth and they're asking him questions. And the reason I want you to note this is because it's important to note the part that's in parentheses. It says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul is quoting a comment from their letter back to him. Now I want you to know what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying that celibacy is a higher and more spiritual form of the Christian life. And that those who possess that gift are on a higher spiritual plane than the rest of us. That's not what Paul's saying. He's just quoting out of their letter. Neither is he saying that the celibate life is bad. He will actually cover that later in chapter 7. That's another category of your status not saying either one of those. He's simply restating the Corinthians original statement in their letter, in their questions to him. That's all he's saying. So he's gonna use it in verse two here in a minute, but, and that brings us to verse two. Now here it says, uh, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, if you have the NIV or the NET Bible, it will translate it slightly different. It will say because sexual immorality is going on. Okay? Because it's going on. Now, Paul's not naive or stupid. He's not. He knows sexual immorality is going on. It's going on in churches today. It's going on all around us. So he knows sexual immorality is going on. And he begins to restrict sex to the biblical context of marriage. I want you to see what Paul says here. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have, and have is underlined up here for you, because the underlying Greek word there means to have sexual relationships. Sexual relationships don't belong outside the marriage. You should be having sexual relationships inside the marriage. Each man should have his own husband or each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband this brings us to verse 3 and this is kind of a key thing for us we don't get this today because in verse 3 Paul pulls the pin and he rolls a hand grenade in the middle of the room to Greeks this verse is a bombshell really and to many people today, it's a bombshell. But for the Greeks, this was a bombshell. Let me tell you about, a little bit about how a Greek man thought and some of his privileges. He, and you see this happen today, he would like to have him a trophy wife. Anybody ever heard that term? You know what I'm talking about. He would like to have a, a trophy wife or a wife that was well-connected, and she could keep the home and raise children and extend the family name, and that was her job. But when it came to pleasures... It was completely culturally okay for him to step outside the bounds of marriage and take his pleasures elsewhere. Mama was taking care of the kids. He was doing what he, and that was Greek culture. That was was the way it was. Paul says, no. I want to invite your attention to the word conjugal rights here, or conjugal. Conjugal means everything that belongs inside of marriage. Paul says pleasurable sex belongs inside the context of marriage what he's telling the Greeks. This is a bombshell. This violates every way they think. They're like, what? No way, dude. But that's what Paul says. And then he, he backs up a little bit from there. He said, each the husband should give. The underlying Greek here is the language of debt. In other words, within the context of marriage, this is an owed debt. You owe it to one another. It's what the Greek, Greek says here. Should give is actually, hey, you owe the spouse all of these things within the context of marriage. And this includes sexual stimulation or anything else along those li- lines. I've had men tell me, I've been counseling with men, and had them tell me, hey, does it matter where I get my appetite as long as I eat at home. That's some scary stuff. But that was the culture, and I've had men tell me this today. That's the equivalent of saying when your Visa card comes due, hey, dudes, I already paid MasterCard. Do you think that's going to fly? No, it's not, it's not going to fly. No, the debt was owed to Visa, and all the aspects of our sexual stimulation and everything else are actually owed to our spouse. They are part of the conjugal rights package. belongs there. And then he does something even worse in Greek culture, he begins to elevate the rights of a woman with those of a man. Because he throws the word in there, likewise. Man should give to the wife her conjugal rights and likewise, and we're going to develop this in the next verse, the woman should give the conjugal rights to her husband. And he begins to elevate both partners in the marriage, both spouses, on the same level. This rocked the Greek world. This, I mean, people would be booing in the back of the congregation. Nobody start booing. But they would be booing in the back of the congregation. Boo, hiss, this isn't right, this ain't right, that's not, that's not the way it is. Paul says that's the way it is biblically. The husband cannot say, I'm the boss because the Bible says no you are the leader with the biblical responsibility to lead in what the Bible teaches and what the Bible teaches is that you and your wife are exactly equal with regards to this issue. You're exactly equal here with regards to this issue. Verse 4 continues to develop the idea of likewise Cool verse. It says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I have actually had men tell me that, hey, when I think it's time, my wife doesn't have authority over her own body. She needs to be ready when I'm ready. Not what Paul says. Paul says she has the equal and opposite authority to you to go, hey, brother, cool your jets. She does. That's what the scripture says. Back off, Willis, whatever you want to put there. She has that equal authority to do that. And this is not something that went over well in Greece. Uh, I can can tell you that. So, and this is often taken out of context. The husband is not the only one with rights. But this results in what we call an intentional logical conundrum, (laughs) How do you work this out? If nobody's in charge, we like to say in the military, if everybody's in charge, no one's in charge. Okay? All the military guys are shaking their head. But how do you work this out in the context of marriage? Because it is a logical conundrum, and it can only be resolved through mutual care and love for one another. That's the only way to resolve it. There's no hard, fast, pat rule that you can just check the box off. You have to work it out in the context of marriage through mutual care and love for one another because the overall focus here and bring us back to the center of the merry-go-round is preventing sexual immorality that's the whole talk Paul is giving here and verse 5 verse 5 is an awesome verse he says to not care for one another and ensure that one another's needs are met is to deprive one another so if I take away your food, clothing, and shelter, I have, t- I have deprived you. I have taken something that is necessary for you. If I put a plastic bag over your head, okay, I'm depriving you of oxygen, something that is necessary <laughs> for you to function. And Paul says you need to look at this issue as if you are depriving one another. Each other's needs is, is, are important. In other words, you weaken your spouse or you set them up for failure when you aren't together on these issues. The very one you're responsible for building up, by the way. Now, Paul says here, look, you can choose to abstain for a while, totally okay, as long as you have mutual consent. In other words, you can't say, hey, I'm going up on the mountain for six months. I'm going to fast and pray. Good luck. I'll see you in six. The spouse has the exact same rights to go, oh, no, Willis, no, you're not going there. You're not doing that. And it would be a violation of what the Scripture teaches for you to go do that without mutual consent. You can choose to abstain for a specific time, but only with mutual consent. And then Paul says, come back together again so that you don't get tempted. Make sure that you're not setting one another up for failure. Well, you see that sexual desire is designed, and you already know this, I'm not teaching anything new here, designed into us by God himself and God himself restricts the expression of those sexual desires to marriage. He clearly does that in this passage. Marriage is a God-given tool, it provides companionship, it helps people be fruitful and multiply to fill the creation mandate. Marriage does a lot of things, but here Paul is saying marriage is also a tool to help us in the fight against sexual immorality. But Paul says even though you're married you still have to be aware of the propensity toward sexual immorality, be aware of Satan's devices. Well, the bottom line here and the reason I talk so much about the body in the beginning is that God is calling us to be holy, to see the beauty of who he is and how he has rescued us, to love him so much that we reflect his character in every aspect of life. That's what you do when you love and respect somebody. If you have a hero, you want to be like them. If Jesus is your hero, you want to be holy like Christ and the primary way God's holiness is expressed by us is through our body we have no other medium you know I can't hmm, yeah there's no other medium for me to express except through my body it does it does it exist so let me ask you what's your status are you married are you single either way are you taking advantage of the biblical tools that are provided here? Are you using the tools God has provided to overcome sin and to reflect his glory? Now, some of you may be sitting here going, no, Nate, I'm not, but I'm going to do better. I'm going to really do better. If, if that's what you're saying in your heart, you missed the whole point of the sermon because you and I can't do better on our own. Culture, remember those big magnets, and our sinful desires will take us down every last time. Peter Drucker uh, originally wrote the phrase culture, each strategy for breakfast. And then other management gurus extrapolated it out where it says culture, each strategy for breakfast, operational excellence for lunch and everything else for dinner. And I have this plastered on my office wall at work to remind me the power of culture. And I think we aren't quite aware sometimes of the power of culture. So how do we avoid this? How do we become more successful at this? We have to continually turn to Christ. And I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. And I want you to look at this very carefully with me, because this is a key understanding. I want you to notice that it's God who's faithful. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. God is faithful. You and I aren't faithful, are we? Okay. And it's he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's he not me, right? He not me. In order for this to happen, our affections, which is what we love, have to shift off of the things of the world, move off of culture and onto personal desires. And you say, Nate, what does that look like? Well, I can illustrate it to you via a story about my Border Collie. Uh, I'm a dog lover, and I particularly like certain breeds, and Border Collies are one of them. And Border Collies are working dogs, and they kinda lock in on whoever they figure the farmer is, and that's the only person they listen to. So in my household, I'm the farmer. And I was gardening, which is what farmers do, and I left a box by my back fence, and my house butts up against the swamp, and deer come up there all the time, and my doggie was up on the, on the box, and he had his back feet on the fence, and a big flop-eared doe comes up there, and he is losing his mind. Bah! You know, and Miss Kate, my wife, starts yelling at him, chaos, by the way, his name is Chaos, okay. but, <laughs> but chaos, get down, get down, and he's, yelling and he's ah, and finally he looks back at Chaos, you can ask her, he looks back at, looks back at Kate, Chaos looks back at Kate, and he goes, ah, and he's gone. His affections were more focused on what he wanted to do than on listening to Kate. But for me, all I have to say is, hey, Chaos, come here. This dog has his affection so set on me, he will almost never be anywhere in the house that he cannot see my face. That's the way he is. One time, Kate took him to the vet. They decided to put a muzzle on him. Yeah, don't happen. Okay. So Kate called me on the phone. You can ask her after church. He, she called me on the phone and says, will you talk to your dog? <laughs> so... She put him on speaker. I started talking to the dog. The dog said, hey, it's Nate. And he stood there and let the vet do anything he wanted to do the whole time. And that really happened. His affections are so on me that I'm, I can do anything to him. He'll jump in my lap, all 65 pounds fuzz that he is. And I can literally turn him upside down, hang him off my lap, flip him up, play with him, do anything. If you touch that dog that way, he would bite you in a second, literally that fast. But his affections are set upon me, and that's how our affections need to be set upon Christ and his word. Well, you say, Nate, look, um, I'm just being honest. What if I've already sinned in this area of sexual immorality? Well, the Bible is also very clear here that in 1 John 1, 9, The scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is both faithful, in other words, he will do it, he's always do it, and he is just, he is just because he accepts the righteousness of Christ as ours, not because of anything we've done. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us squeaky clean, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even if you failed in these areas, you can turn to Christ. Now This is my closing statement and I would like for everyone to look at me, put your your pens down. Imagine what an impact this would have on your life. If each time you were tempted to sin, each time, each time it comes to your mind and you catch it, you would immediately turn to Christ, your affections would be set on Christ. And each time you did fall, because you're going to fall, you're human, doesn't mean you have to, but you're going to mess up. And each time you did fall into sin, you immediately turned to Christ and confessed. Imagine what a glorious life of walking in God's grace that would be for you and me. Imagine the joy in your life that you would have because you did that. Imagine how beautiful our marriages would be, that the world would marvel at Christian marriages and go, wow. I see how Jesus loves the church because that's what marriage is a picture of. Let's pray.